Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Dan Goldblatt today, who's sitting in for Mary Catherine Carmichael. Uh, This summer, Indiana University's European Union Center has commissioned the Indiana Business Research Center to conduct a study on European investment in Indiana. Uh, How much money do European companies invest in Indiana? What kind of companies are these companies that are investing in Indiana? Those are the things we're going to talk about today with our two guests. Brant Beyer is here. He's the project manager at the EU Center. And Jerry Conover, the director of the Indiana Business Research Center, is also here with us today. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. The web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for, thanks for being here. We're hopefully we can uh, get some answers to all these questions about what's going on in Europe and how that affects us. Uh, so I also want to welcome Dan Goldblatt to this side of the, uh, the, the window. Yeah, it's good to be, good yeah. to be over on this side. Dan's been with our <laughs> producer for many, uh, for many programs for a little more than a year, I think. Um, so I wanted to start with a question for Brant about the uh, European Union Center. What exactly is it and how long has it been in, in place? Well, we're a relatively new center. Uh, We were founded in 2005 with a grant from the European Union. Uh, We're currently part of the College of Arts and Sciences at IU Bloomington. And mostly our job is to inform Indiana and the Midwest about the European Union. Uh, We have a very small academic program, and so our main focus is informing teachers, students, businessmen, um, government leaders about the European Union, what it is. Um, After all, you probably know that the European Union didn't exist when you were in school. So even for many of our leaders, it's still a relatively new concept since it's only been around for about Mm -hmm. 20 years. How how many nations are there in the European Union? Uh, Currently, there are 27 Mm -hmm. stretching from Ireland to Romania. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, we know that there have been some economic issues over there, and we're going to try to talk about that. But uh, first, Jerry, um, I know your, your center is a little older than that. (laughs) It's been around for a while. But you're doing this uh, study this this year to find out how much money the European companies are investing in Indiana. Where are you in the process? Well, the uh, analysis has uh, been largely completed at this point, and we have uh, a report that's undergoing uh, the review process currently, and I'm hopeful that uh, we'll have a copy in Brant's hands, uh, well, Next week, mm-hmm. uh, give or take. So you're going to share some uh, of those top lines with us today, though, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> okay. give, give you a preview, and the report will be available to the, for the world to see uh, very soon. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. Well, I know that uh, there has been there have been studies before about uh, Europe, European investment in Indiana, and I know that uh, one of the areas is motor vehicle manufacturing. I went to your website today and saw. Uh, a recent study that I think that that the Business Research Center had done on that, and I guess that one for people who are are Hoosiers might be pretty understandable. I mean, mm-hmm. Daimler Chrys- Daimler bought Chrysler, and so German investment in those those former Chrysler plants is pretty well known. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that uh, investment in vehicle manufacturing has gone? Has it been increasing in the state, or has it been decreasing? Actually, uh, it has been going up uh, in uh, the last several years. It's, it's accelerating. Um, manufacturing has always, well, for, for a long time at least, has been uh, a big part of the foreign direct investment scene in Indiana. And uh, it's, it's a capital-intensive industry, so it puts us up there at a pretty high level in the nation. I think we rank eighth nationally in terms of investments in foreign direct investment over the last few years. Uh, that's almost $5 billion worth, and a large portion of that uh, uh, will be in manufacturing-related jobs. And of that, uh, about 28% is in the automotive sector. So mm-hmm. it's a sizable commitment uh, from countries all over the world. Uh, the largest of those is actually Japan. But once you get past Japan, European countries tend to dominate this foreign direct investment in Indiana. Mm-hmm. How, how does the state go about um, trying to increase this 
investment. I mean, I'm sure that all states are trying to get investment from the European Union as well as Japan, China. So from your perspective, we've had government officials in here to talk about those kind of things. But from your perspective, you know, how well is Indiana doing? How's their strategy? Um, basically, I would say Indiana is uh, doing quite well relative to most of the nation. Uh, the state has organized through the Indiana Economic Development Corporation They've organized a number of trade missions to various parts of the world, and uh, there was uh, there's one, I think, just coming up shortly in China. Again, this would be probably every year there's at least one, sometimes a couple, going to that part of the world. The governor frequently goes along. Uh, there have been trade missions into Europe as well. And uh, we've gotten a lot of commitments of... Uh, uh, businesses that have typically followed those trade missions. Uh, there was an announcement just this week of one from uh, a recent visit just a few months back to Asia that uh, could generate several hundred more jobs at a particular plant. Um, these kinds of things are leading, are helping push Indiana up in the rankings in terms of states where foreign direct investment is taking place. Mm-hmm. Before I let Dan uh, jump in with his questions, I, I want to follow up on that because it seems like um, we are – we write a lot about, it seems to me, um, the trade missions to uh, Asian countries, to Japan, to China. That seems like there's a lot of interest in getting investment from there. But we don't hear so much about trade missions to the European Union. And uh, I guess I wanted to ask Brant about you know, how prevalent are those trade missions and how important are they? Well, um, I mean, they still exist a lot. Um, for instance, Indianapolis ha- sends a lot of trade missions to Europe still. Um, a lot of them automotive. They're trying to work a lot with um, other places in England, for instance, where they produce cars and um, auto racing. So they are prevalent. They're, I say they just fall into a radar because the governor isn't going. But they do happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And speaking of the, the auto industry, um, of course, Chrysler was owned um, by Germany. Now it's primarily owned by uh, U.S. auto workers and fiat. And taxpayers. And de- <laughs> we, well, the, gov- the government just finally got rid of the last, the last bit of, of Chrysler, I think, this week, and fiat owns it. Does that mean that we're going to have to worry about Chrysler's being built in Italy now, or are we going to be able to have fiats built in Indiana? How is that, that going to affect it? I don't think there are any plans, at least I haven't heard of any, for uh, fiat nameplate vehicles being built in Indiana. Part of the cachet perhaps comes from uh, having that Italian-made vehicle. But fiat, uh, as the uh, parent company, um, is investing a lot of money in Indiana expansion of facilities and uh, upgrading of facilities. In Kokomo in particular, for Mm -hmm. example, uh, they have announced... uh, uh, a series of investments that are pushing somewhere in the ballpark of a billion dollars in new plant and equipment that will, uh, I think the main focus is going to be, uh, I think it's an eight or nine speed transmission, automatic transmission, that because it has more gears to go through, will let the engine operate in an efficient range throughout the whole range of speeds. And as a result, it's supposed to improve mileage quite a bit. And they're hoping that consumers are going to look for that. So that's a a good example of a major investment by a European company uh, in Indiana, choosing Indiana in this case because, first, they've got a major facility, the Chrysler operations in the Kokomo area, and a lot of experience on the workforce in building uh, products reliably and and, uh, having a, you know, kind of positive attitude of the workers. So that that tends to attract investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fiat is actually a um, very international car company, surprisingly, since we don't hear about it, since they haven't sold cars in the United States for 20 years or so. But um, compared to some of the uh, French companies, such as Renault, uh, Fiat actually sells a lot more cars and makes a lot more cars outside of its home country of Italy. So we should be happy that we have this nice international company investing in Chrysler compared to many others. And that Fiat's are being sold in, in Chrysler. Right. Mm-hmm. Our, our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. The 
The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. We're talking about uh, European in, the European Union's investment in Indiana in particular, uh, what kinds of companies are investing here and uh, which, which are the companies that are trying to do more investment. Uh, I want to go back a few years in, in Bloomington because we're no – Bloomington is no um, stranger to European investment uh, the Thompson plant is one of the one of the the RCA plant is one that really comes to mind because Thompson which was a French company purchased the uh, RCA plant before it wound up closing it and selling it and then there was the uh, Westinghouse plant that was sold to I'm not remembering exactly what company it was but I believe it was a German company uh, at some point um, which you know the people who haven't been here for more than a decade or so probably don't even know there was a Westinghouse plant here in Bloomington but I'm dating myself so I mean that's been on the local level besides the state level that's been uh, something that we're a little bit familiar with have have the um, electronics companies like Thompson and maybe other companies that that are uh, based in Europe have they continued to invest in the United States European investment in uh, electronics does continue to be active but it's uh, it's kind of losing share relative to other industries where they tend to be focusing more of the investment. And the biggest part of, uh, of FDI, foreign direct investment, in uh, Indiana in recent years has been growth, especially from the European sector, growth in the life sciences-related fields. Now, some of that could be electronic in nature, but not consumer electronics, mm-hmm. if you will. That includes, for example... Uh, uh, if you look at all the European zone countries, about three-quarters of Indiana's exports are in pharmaceuticals, organic chemicals, and optical and medical devices. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a large portion of, of the total. So it, it's a good thing because Indiana has a growing life sciences sector uh, throughout the state. Uh, Bloomington's a good example. Uh, there's a, uh, a Swiss-owned firm here in Bloomington uh, called Gerbe, which uh, uh, is in, I think they're in radiological uh, substances for diagnostic purposes or something like that. And uh, they've been around for several years now and uh, chose Bloomington as a, a life science hub, uh, Swiss base, I think. Um, there's you know, not too many examples of of prominent European investment that come directly to mind in, in the local area here. But if you look around the state, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have uh, a live chatter. Uh, Ryan asks, says, similar to the United States, there's a variety of economies both in type and size that exist within the EU. Uh, is our economic connection with the EU limited only to a few members or many members? Um, are there any surprises? For instance, it would seem unusual that Malta uh, has an economic presence in Indiana, but are some of the smaller member states also figuring into the state's economic relationship to the EU? Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Next Can you question. On that? <laughs> well, um, I can only speak to exports, but I do know that compared to the United States and its neighbors in general, while Indiana does export a lot to the major big countries of Germany, France, etc., we also export a surprisingly large share to Ireland, for instance, to Spain, um, to the Netherlands, to Belgium, which are medium-sized countries, of course, but not the main exporting partners of, say, um, Illinois or Ohio. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. I want to get to some of the, the big issues that have been um, – whether well, playing out on, on television news and radio news. NPR certainly is reporting a lot about it. Uh, in regard to some of the countries in the EU that seem to be having you know huge uh, challenges, much like the United States is, um, I you know I'm not in this world that uh, as much as you are, but I was uh, first introduced to the term pigs uh, not too long ago, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, you know, listening to some NPR. Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain as five countries that seem to be facing. Um, serious budget deficits, um, high debt, all those kinds of issues. How concerned should we be in the U.S. about what's happening in those five countries in particular? 
Right. Well, of course, the one that's getting the most attention right now is Greece, um, since they have a very large debt of approximately 100 percent of their GDP, whereas the United States is probably around 60 to 70 percent. So it's a much bigger magnitude. But Greece is also a very small country, so it only accounts for about 2 percent of the entire economy of the European Union. And as far as I know, and Jerry can correct me, of course, is that we don't have a lot of ties in Indiana with Greece directly economically. So our major concern would be that um, the problems in Greece spill over to a much bigger economy such as Italy or Spain, who account for about 10%, each of which account for about 10% of the EU's economy. So and those countries, we do have strong economic ties with. Mm-hmm. And so if they're, you know, if they, if they default on their loans, I and mean, we're talking about that in the U.S., you know, with the debt ceiling crisis, you know, what, what's that mean to us? If, if uh, Italy, let's say it does spill over to Italy and mm-hmm. Italy's economy were to fail, for lack of a better word, what would that, you know, what, what would the ripple effect be in the U.S.? Well, I mean, the first direct effect, if Italy were to default tomorrow, let's imagine. Um, the first people will be hurt would be banks, um, retirement funds, other people that own Italian debt because suddenly this Italian debt that they own would no longer be valuable. Um, for the so that would be the mo- that would be the direct impact. Um, secondly, of course, um, the euro, the exchange rate of the euro versus the dollar would declined dramatically as the euro became less valuable. And this would have a direct impact both on FDI going into the United States and our exports to Europe because if the euro were to fall, our exports would become more expensive compared to European products. And um, the Europeans, their investments in Indiana would suddenly become less valuable because their euro wouldn't be going as far in the United States. So how how likely are these scenarios? And, and can you go? Can you explain? And I know we talked before the show a little bit about, you know, what, what happened in Greece yesterday that got mm-hmm. the stock market all revved up um, because people seem to like what occurred. And is this going to be? Is this something that are we out of the woods? Mm. Well, I not since this just happened yesterday. I'm not sure if we're out of the woods yet. But the, um, what happened yesterday was the leaders of the 27 countries of the European Union met in Brussels, which is the headquarters of the European Union. And basically, most of the other 26 members agreed that they would give more money to Greece to help them pay down their debt, continue government spending, as well as try to convince um, private banks and such that own Greek debt to either extend their debt longer, so that instead of saying it being um, due in 10 years, being due in 30 years, as well as also um, decreasing the amount of debt that the banks though, are going to demand that Greece pays back. So it's like a write-off? They're, they're some, of the, uh, some of these loans? Um, that's out? a tricky word because <laughs> if once you start saying write-off and default, um, bond ratings go down. Oh, okay. But, uh, so we're not saying that. We're not – well, there's been all sorts of terms for around selective default or – so it – it's, we'll, we'll, we'll see what Moody's and others decide to well, call it. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm trying to – these things, uh, I believe, are very complicated and complex for a typical Hoosier mm-hmm. like me to try to sort out what's happening in the world economies. So when you say that the 26 other countries, you know, they met, did they – and they would help Greece pay down their debt. Um, so that means they're actually giving them, like, grant money to – Help them pay down the debt? Well, technically, it's a loan at very low interest rates. Okay. But yes, basically, if you're a taxpayer in, say, Germany, your government just agreed that they will be giving more of your tax dollars to Greece to mm. help pay down Greek debt so that the Greek government um, does not default. Yeah. And, of course, many of the richer countries that have sound fiscal policy are um, – concerned about this because they don't want their tax dollars going to a country that, in their mind, spent foolishly for many years. Mm-hmm. So, again, just to, to try to make sure that I understand it, and then hopefully everybody else will. If I can, everybody <laughs> else should be able to. Um, because, you know, when you talk about loaning money to Greece in order for them to pay down their debt, it sounds to me like the debt's just getting bigger because they're loaning them money. But it's, it all comes down to the interest rates. Right. right. It's like imagining that you have a credit card debt and it's, say, 17%, which is actually very similar to what Greece is paying right now for bond rates. 
and somebody off, and you take a loan from a bank at 3% to pay down your mm-hmm. credit card rate that's 17%, you're saving money since the rate is substantially lower. Right. It's like right. those credit card offers where you get in the mail and it says, uh, you know, write this check on your account uh, and it'll be 0% interest for the next year, mm-hmm. and then you can use that to pay off higher interest debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still... You know, have, well, if you use it totally to pay off existing debt that's at a higher rate, then your total debt load hasn't increased, but your the burden of making those interest payments has right. gone down. Okay, and, so that's what happened yesterday mm-hmm. that has has created some optimism. So that that's you know that's Greece, and we've talked about these other countries. I remember when I was when I was driving back uh, from a vacation. Uh, Bumped into Dan Goldblatt in Florida, by the way, but that's another story for another day. Um, I think Portugal was in was in the news at that point, and then there, there was discussion about Italy and what might happen with mm-hmm. Italy, and then I think there were some cons- concerns about Spain. So if we if we get Greece out of the woods, uh, at least temporarily, how serious are the issues in these other countries? Are they as serious as as uh, the issues in Greece? Well, all those countries. The other three countries, their issues are smaller to begin with. Um, Most of them have debt levels similar to the United States, excluding Italy, which has actually the third largest debt in the world, despite the fact that its economy is not the third largest. In percentage Uh, terms, we're talking. In absolute terms, actually. (laughs) It's um, over a trillion dollars. It's huge. It's up to like 140 percent of GDP. So in percentage terms, it's actually the second highest, I believe. Okay. I I need to stop you here. So Italy's – no, no. no, Sorry. Italy's debt's a trillion Mm dollars. It's the third largest debt in the world. Uh, The U.S. debt's 14 trillion? I believe so. Yeah. So, similar. Okay, I just, to 15, I believe. I just wanted to, to try to get things into but, some kind of But we're, um, <laughs> we're looking at apps in different orders of magnitude, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, the United States economy <clears throat> is much is larger than that size, whereas mm-hmm. Italy's economy is less than a trillion dollars. So what we're saying is that they owe more than they produce a year in total mm-hmm. economic output. That's a lot more serious yeah. situation than we're in. Yeah. Now, I know in the EU they have a similar unemployment crisis, um, their unemployment rates are even a little higher than us, often around 10 percent. Are we worried in Indiana that with this high unemployment, there a nationalist movement is going to start where they don't want to invest overseas? They want to keep production in the EU to keep unemployment down? I, I suspect that within the uh, EU private sector, uh, most firms would recognize that Investing in other parts of the world is where growth is happening. The, the population of Europe hasn't been growing at, at a very rapid pace. I mean, certain countries are, are above the average. But on the whole, it's a slow-growing population, which means if you want markets that are expanding to get more and more sales from, you have to look elsewhere. Same is true of the U.S. Uh, there's stories in the news all the time about U.S. companies that are making most of their money overseas these days. Companies that used to sell just domestically uh, several generations ago. Caterpillar was one in the news yesterday that uh, announced uh, a major increase in profits this past year. And most of that's coming from sales of FA equipment, tractors, you know, or bulldozers, things like that. In China, Brazil, you know, the, the BRIC countries, as they're called, that are rapidly growing. And European sellers, European companies, face the same market opportunities, um, whether they would choose to invest in the U.S. really depends on how they see the opportunities for their kinds of products. And we do still attract quite a bit of, uh, of uh, European investment here in Indiana because of the kinds of customers that they will find here, typically not something to be sold to end-user Hoosiers, but to, to Indiana companies that are making something else and need those European-made components. Uh, you know, like p- components of windmills for generating electric power would be a good example. Mm-hmm. There are several foreign countries that are uh, – European countries that are investing in that sort of thing here in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Which which ones? Um, Bravini is an Italian company uh, that is a big name in the uh, – I think they're in the gearbox portion, uh, part of the generating system that goes inside those turbines. Um, I'm trying to think. Brant, you remember any of the others? They're doing the manufacturing, and then their parts are coming over here to be used. And no, they're actually manufacturing yeah. in Indiana oh, now. Okay. So, I mean, they also manufacture elsewhere. But uh-huh. for something like that, that's a bulky item, you know, a lot of weight and so forth, it makes sense to produce it closer to where it's going to be used um, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
So because Indiana's uh, wind energy uh, industry has really been growing, it's one of the fastest growing in the country, uh, there's a good market here and in nearby states for a product like that. Mm-hmm. So an Italian company uh, jumps into the fray and uh, becomes a leading player in the region. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about uh, the European Union and its investment in Indiana, and we've branched off into several other issues. Uh, Brant Beyer is here. He's a project manager at the European Union Center on the Indiana University campus. Jerry Conover is here. He's been here before. He's the director of the Indiana Business Research Center. If you want to join us on the program in the second half, and I hope you will, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area, or you can go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcast directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald-Times, along with co-host Dan Goldblatt from WFIU. And today we're talking about the European Union investment in Indiana. And uh, for guys like me, we're trying to sort out what it means, uh, what's going on in, in the European economies, uh, places like Greece and Italy and Portugal and other places, what those things mean and and might mean to us living over here in Indiana. If you want to join us on the program, if you have questions, uh, please phone us 855-0811 or toll free 877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address. Yeah, I want to talk about Rolls-Royce a little bit. Um, One of their largest North American plants is in Indianapolis. Um, but people probably think that they build Rolls-Royce cars, but, but they don't. Talk about, a little bit about what the Rolls-Royce plant in Indy um, does, what kind of products they make that are not Rolls-Royce cars. Well, it sounds like that would be a good place to work if you want to get the friends and family discount on the car, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, unfortunately, I think you would have to get it on a, a flying vehicle instead because that plant makes um, engines uh, largely, or at least a large part of what they produce is – uh, jet engines for everything from uh, fixed-wing aircraft to helicopters that uh, use these things. And so their customers are uh, – a large part of it's driven by the defense sector uh, in the, not only the U.S., although that's a big chunk of what is produced here goes there, but also uh, uh, other parts of the world and then the private aviation as well. So if there's you know an order for a new fleet of 50 or 100 regional jets someplace, if they can get a piece of that action, then that generates lots of millions of dollars. And the typical uh, contracts that are announced by the Rolls-Royce operation in Indianapolis uh, amount to anywhere from 5 or 10 million to sometimes several hundred million dollars per contract. So you can have a lot of jobs hinging on the the fate of whether they continue to line up these contracts. It's a British-based company, of course, um, and they've been in North America for quite a while, a major player in providing the power plants for aviation. And as long as the aviation industry is growing, and the defense industry in particular, uh, their fate is good. Now, you might then wonder what happens when, as the U.S. winds down its involvement in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and other parts of of that corner of the world, um, as they try to make you know, the budget reconcile finally, uh, and the hundreds of millions of dollars may be cut out of defense 
purchases, hundreds of billions, I should say, then what does that do to a company like Rolls-Royce? And I'm sure the executives there are uh, concerned about that same question. And, uh, Stephanie from Terre Haute uh, was on the line earlier. She asked, can someone give a brief explanation of how Italy got into the third highest debt? Um, basically, um, Italy for many years has just borrowed money. Um, one of the advantages of joining the euro was that interest rates decreased because everybody assumed that you would have to follow a, a pattern of um, government spending like Germany. So therefore, debt became cheaper. So it allowed the Italians to just keep on borrowing. Greece is actually a better example of this. They borrowed way beyond their means once they got into the euro. But it's just Italy being a developed country, people were willing to loan the money for years on end. Now, um, Brant, Brant Byer is here. He's the project manager of the European Union Center. So I'm going to ask this question to you. I heard a, heard a report yesterday, I think, on NPR, you know, my favorite radio station to listen to, <laughs> WFIU. And um, I, it was ta- there was an expert talking about how the European Union, if it's going to survive, may need to really alter its form. And this particular person mentioned something about you know, more like a United States of America sort of concept for the European Union. Can you further explain that? Yes. Um, everybody loves to compare the United States to the European Union or vice versa. Um, but one important difference is that the United States has a federal government. When we talk about the European Union, you still have to get all of the 27 countries, the member states, to agree to something. And in this current crisis, we're, the big issue for Europe is that they do not transfer money between countries usually. Um, the United States, you know, we have this huge federal budget. It's about 30 percent of our uh, GDP, whereas the EU budget is fixed at 1.5 percent or 1.25 percent. So this money is so small that it really doesn't allow countries that are doing well to help countries that are poor off. Mm-hmm. So is there? do you see any movement in that direction? Well, um, I mean, yesterday it was decided basically that – the European Union is going to have something similar to the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, which will allow um, rich countries to bail out poor countries. So it is slowly moving in that direction. It seems every time Europe has a crisis, their solution is to become closer together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've mentioned the the PIGS, P-I-I-G-S, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. You know, those are, are countries uh, that people in, in Bloomington, the United States, are very familiar with. Um, they're the countries that are seem to be in trouble. Who are the countries that are the rich countries? Who are the ones that are able to loan money to at low interest rates to these other countries? Well, uh, yeah, that's a really important distinction because while we think about the pigs and how um, – and we would just assume that all of the EU is doing poorly. In fact, Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, the northern countries are doing really well. Germany actually recently had a three-month period that was their greatest um, economic growth since – Germany reunified in 1990. So that is an issue is we're there's starting to be this north-south comparison where the southern countries along the Mediterranean are doing poorly, whereas the northern European countries, their economies are booming. Germany is exporting a lot. Um, last year became Indiana's biggest importer after Canada for the first time. So there is this divide in Europe, and that is Part of the reason they're in this situation is there's a no one-size-fits-all policy for mm-hmm. Europe right now. Why are the northern economies doing better? Is because the southern economies were more tourism-based and that's sort of tanked a little bit? Um, that is probably part of it, tourism. Other um, sectors where the southern con- countries were doing well has tanked. Um, but part of it is also that the Germans have decided that they are going to be very efficient exporters. Um, Germany is the second largest exporter in the world after China. So while their economy is becoming more leaner and stronger, the Italians, the Spanish, and the others, their economies haven't seen these dramatic reforms to make um, in the last 10 years since I joined the euro. Mm-hmm. So how, where does the United States and its $14 trillion debt fit in to this? How much, how much of that debt um, is owed to maybe Germany, some of these stronger European countries? Do we, uh, that may be a little far afield from our, the topic we were going to talk about today. But. Well, U.S. debt has for forever and ever practically been the favorite uh, investment if somebody wanted to put their money into something safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the moment, it still is. Check back in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but because of that, investors from all over the world have bought treasury securities, uh, treasury debt from the U.S. Uh, so 
I think you'll find, generally speaking, that relative to the size of a country's overall economy, that's uh, some pro- similar proportion of their uh, share of total U.S. debt. So I would expect, although I don't have the figures handy, that uh, Germany, for example, U.K., France would be uh, among the larger holders uh, in Europe. But uh, the majority of purchases in the last decade or more have come from Asia, uh, from China in particular, and Japan uh, have invested you know, a large portion of the total – well, basically the total dollars that get spent by the U.S. government have been coming from countries all over the world and especially the rapidly growing economies increasingly – and especially from Asia. Mm-hmm. I should say I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because our, our producer, Rachel, is working on a program next week about the debt ceiling. So hopefully we'll um, get a lot more deeply involved in that topic next Friday. Um, again, our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. All right. I want to get a little bit back to this report. Um, Obviously, it's something um, – it's not even officially released yet. Why was it commissioned? What was – was there a, a specific reason that thought maybe we should look at this and see where all these investments are coming from, where they're going? Well, um, in one um, phase, we're actually very lucky in that. The European Union Center received a grant from the EU last year to look at these sorts of questions about why should Hoosiers – why should um, Buckeyes care about the European Union? So as a result, we figured that one of the best ways to show this was economically, because it's the most obvious after cultural linguistic ties. And, of course, the IBRC has the track record in producing these sorts of reports. So it seems like a natural fit for them to look at why, who is investing in Indiana and why. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's investment in Indiana and looking at the flip side of that, the sale of Indiana-made products, goods or services, to other countries uh, is a big chunk of our economy. So it's important to Indiana University to, you know, help convey knowledge and insight about how Indiana operates, as well as important to the European Union to have Americans know more about this sort of thing. And so it's a, a nice relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious about the the center because I mean you mentioned that it was funded by a grant from the from the EU. Um, it, is that its only source of funding? Um, we do have partnerships with other centers such as the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Uh, we receive a lot of support from the College of Arts and Sciences. So we do receive funding from other areas, and this grant allows us to really go out into the community and um, provide resources or help. Other centers, such as the IBRC, provide resources on the European Union to mm-hmm. Indiana. And so how, how is the center governed? Is there a governing board? I know there's a director and then mm-hmm. you're the uh, – what, what is your title? The I'm officially the project manager. Project manager. I mean, we're a very small center. That's basically the staff for the uh-huh. center. Um, but currently we fall under the guidance of West European Studies, which does have an administrative advisory board and does report directly to the College of Arts and Sciences. Mm-hmm. So what, what other – so what other um, major projects have you done or what, what do you think you, you should – I know I don't want to get too far ahead of what you mm-hmm. just were just getting ready to release. But you know, what are some other really key things that people in Indiana need to know about the European Union? What, where can you serve both Hoosiers and the European Union? In- oh, OK. Well, I mean since Indiana does have such strong economic ties, actually – much larger than the size of the state's population, for instance. Um, we are trying to highlight these ties in many ways. We are going, we're going to send a delegation actually to Brussels in a couple months. Uh, the details haven't been finalized yet um, of economic development officials from county, local government, and they'll get to learn about how the EU works because we re- really want to teach people how does the EU work since it's an institution that's compared to the United States, but it's much different. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, the role of exports in the growth of one's regional economy shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, exports a- account for a large chunk of Indiana's relative growth compared to the rest of the U.S. in the in economic terms over the last several years. Uh, during the recession, uh, you know, we we had a slump just like everybody else, but ours wasn't as bad as many places. In significant part because we were continuing to export better than average compared to other uh, U.S. areas. Last year, uh, the t- exports in 2010 were at a record level, $29 billion from Indiana. 
and that puts us 14th in the nation in terms of the, the dollar value. But our exports have been growing at a substantially faster rate over the last decade. It's averaged at 9% uh, annually, and the nation's only been growing in exports by about 6%. So at this rate, we're likely to be climbing ahead of other states in the rankings in the coming years. And if you look at all of the uh, the countries, and we, we export products to well over 100 countries, but uh, the biggest ones, the top 10, four of those are in Europe. Uh, for what it's worth. Those are Germany, which is in third place uh, right behind Canada and Mexico, uh, followed by the United Kingdom, France, and then you drop down a few more spots to eighth rank, uh, which is Spain. But Spain's an interesting case. Uh, you know, we talked about it being part of that pigs group and you know, the, the dangers to their economic stability. But Spain has been the fastest growing destination for Indiana goods and services among all of those top 10 export receiving countries. Uh, growing, uh, let's see, 22% annually over the last decade. And in the last year alone, it doubled. So now, I mean, currently, Spain is is buying about Mm -hmm. 14 times as much Indiana products in terms of dollar value as it did a decade ago. What are we we sending there? That's what I was going (laughs) to ask. (laughs) Well, since you asked, um, pharmaceutical products account for more than half. Um, let's see. Looks, I'm just looking at a graph here. Organic chemicals, I believe, are more than a third. And then you drop down to a bunch of them that are in 5% or less. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, you know, it sounds like it's life sciences related and possibly agriculture related. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have a phone call, so let's go to Stan. Stan, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I was in the car during the program, so this may have come up, and I apologize if it has. Um, in terms of the jobs created by foreign investment here, uh, I'm going to assume that they are going to be at, at professional or higher pay grade rather than, say, the uh, uh, Westinghouse plant type of thing, but, but I don't know that that's true. And secondly, um, as with some American companies overseas, do the companies that are foreign-owned uh, pay taxes in this country, or do they have a mechanism like some of our tax laws that allow them to escape uh, taxation? As far as the the jobs or the quality of the jobs from uh, foreign-owned firms, by and large, those are, well, about 70% of those jobs are in the manufacturing sector. And manufacturing jobs, on average, uh, are above typical wages for other sectors. So you would say that foreign direct-owned firms are uh, in Indiana are above-average-paying uh, firms. Now, whether those, I, I wouldn't say that those are largely professional types of jobs necessarily, although some of them would be. Um, and what was the other question? Taxation. Taxation and profits uh, to the home country versus this country. Ah, um, that's an area that's uh, beyond my detailed expertise, I will say, but uh, um, I believe that there are taxes collected here as well as uh, back home for those operations. So it's it's a net benefit to uh, Indiana. Yes. uh, If you think about it, um, let's say a company announces that it's going to build a plant, uh, a couple hundred thousand square feet and uh, a lot of equipment and loading docks and so forth, a, a foreign company, and then they're going to employ a few hundred people there. You're talking about a substantial uh, ripple effect of the construction or expansion of that fu- that site, which means Indiana companies are likely to be involved in, in building it. Uh, then you've got all the payrolls that come along of the people who wind up working there. Honda's a good example. I mean, they spent, uh, you know, a billion dollars, or I don't remember exactly how much it was, to build the plant in Greensburg. And... Uh, that generates a lot of tax revenue for Indiana, uh, well, revenue for Indiana firms, which in turn translates to taxes in the, the state coffers, um, as well as... The area, uh, uh, organizations are earning uh, money from the employed and so on. Right, exactly. So it, that recirculates, and uh, when it's fe- foreign money coming in to do this in the first place, that's essentially a, a net a total net uh, gain in the economy. I mean, all that activity that's stimulated is the result of money that wasn't here to start with. I see. 
Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, Stan. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. A couple questions I wanted to ask, uh, again, about the European Union. And one has to do with uh, the euro. Mm-hmm. Um, is the euro used in all 27 countries? No, the euro is currently used in 17 countries. The uh, okay. latest member was Estonia, which joined this year. Because mm-hmm. I know, I mean, if you went to... United Kingdom. You right. Know, you still have to use the pound. the pound. But if you go to Ireland, you can use the euro. If you go to most <clears throat> Western European countries, you can use the euro. So when we talk about the, you know, the strength of the euro versus the dollar, I mean, can you sort of encapsulate what, that, what, what we should be looking for? What, when the euro goes up, is that good for us for any reason? When it goes down, is it good for us? For, I mean, when is it good and when is it bad, well, what's happening with the euro? It all depends on what you're doing. Um, it's always good. If, if you're a tourist, it's bad when it goes up because that means that your dollar will not go as far in Europe. But it's good for American com- companies that export to Europe because that means their products are cheaper in Europe. And it's a vice versa. If the euro goes down, it's great. If you're a tourist, you can buy more. But if you're an American company, you can sell less. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I- now, the United States has always had a, a pretty strong trade relationship with Europe going back to the 1700s. As far as how the southern Asia is expanding, are we going to see more or less European trade, not just in the, the entire United States? How is, how is that trend going right now? Essentially, are we, are we, as far as trade percentage, are we trading as a smaller percentage with Europe as in the past? And is that trend going to continue if that's the case? Uh, I'm, I don't have the numbers real handy here, but I'm thinking that our total um, trade, the, the European share of, of our trade has generally been increasing. Well, it's definitely been increasing in dollar value. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's increasing faster than other parts of the world is ultimately what it boils down to. And uh, it has grown uh, at a pretty healthy pace. So um, I'll have to get back to you on that, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, the other area I wanted to explore a little bit about the European Union is just politics and government because, you know, we – sometimes, I'll, you know, I'll hear stories about what's going on in, with government in France or Italy and I'm like, wow, that's – those are crazy people over there. I'm sure they think the same thing when they read stories about what goes on with our politics here. But are there are there countries that have a democracy or, or a, a government that's – that are you would compare more similarly – to the U.S. and the way the U.S. operates um, than others? Hmm. Well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I would have to say that maybe some of the countries such as France are a little more similar in that they have a, pres- a strong president. Uh, most European countries, they have no pr- a weak president and the prime minister who is actually a member of their parliament has most of the power. Uh, so there is a lot of difference in that way. Um, looking at the European Union versus the United States, the EU did try to become more similar. They now have a president, but at the same time, the EU itself is much weaker with having to get agreement among 27 different countries to really accomplish anything. Can you do nothing without – I mean, there's no kind of majority rule in the European Union? Well, um, sure, there are a majority rule, but the way the EU works is they agree in principle on something, and then they find all these ways to opt out of it. <laughs> so, um, so in principle, there's a majority rule on many different policies, but these are the things that you usually don't hear about. These are regulations that would affect, say, inter- inter-country trucking or something. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we only have about five minutes left to go in the program. And, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, the European investment in Indiana. We've talked some about Indiana investment in Europe. Where, where is that growing the most, Jerry? The, the, if you were talking about, you know, Indiana exporting to various countries and we talked about pharmaceuticals, I guess, is that the number one uh, area where, where we're increasing what we're shipping over to the European Union? In terms of European Union, yes, uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, organic chemicals and medical and optical devices are uh, the largest. Uh, they account for the majority of, of European Union purchases of Indiana goods. If you looked at the total world market, our biggest export is actually motor vehicles and parts. A lot of that goes to Canada and Mexico and then in smaller proportions to other parts of the world. But Canada and Mexico are our two biggest trading partners um, when it comes to exports. So, um, But European Union doesn't buy as many of our vehicles. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're a little more self-sufficient. 
perhaps. We've got a lot of makers over there. (laughs) Now, Indiana is known for having a lot of parts for cars made. I know Ford makes a lot of their cars over in Europe. Are we sending parts from made here in Indiana to be assembled into full automobiles over there? Uh, Well, parts that would be part of full automobiles, uh, to some extent, I'm sure that's the case. But it's not on the top list of... uh, imported products, the top five at least, from any of the largest European uh, buyers of our goods. Um, So they're basically, they're more likely to be buying industrial machinery from Indiana, for example, you know, various machines that are used in production processes uh, and those machines being made here. So I want to bring us back to the beginning. We only have about a minute, minute and a half to go. Bring us back to where we started with this program, and that is the the, study that was commissioned uh, on European investment in Indiana and how much money European companies are investing here and all that. We've talked about a lot of different things. I assume a lot of that's in the study that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Jerry, have we missed anything big? I mean, I, you know, I sort of joked about maybe you were going to give us all the top lines of the study and this program. Are there one or two – are there any other big issues or surprises or uh, crucial points that you think the study is going to show when you finally release it? Well, the study looks at the, the overall world situation for FDI into Indiana and for exports from Indiana, as well as a special focus on the European uh, region. And overall, I would say um, Hoosiers should be aware that exports to the rest of the world are a very significant uh, factor in Indiana's economy. Um, we're growing at a substantially faster rate than other states in exporting activity. And uh, it's important for us to recognize that there are markets, there are customers out there around the world for our stuff. So when people say, oh, well, we should enact laws that uh, keep companies from creating jobs overseas, uh, keep American companies from doing that, I, I would tend to discourage that kind of thinking because that's where the markets are. And in a lot of cases, you have to produce close to where your customers are. That's mm-hmm. still money that comes back home. Mm-hmm. All right. And we are out of time. I want to thank Jerry. Thanks for being here again. I My mean, pleasure. We've had you before. We always enjoy talking with you. And Brant, thanks for coming in. Well, we've learned you, a lot about the European Union Center and what, what you do. And Dan, it's been a pleasure being uh, yeah, partnered been, up with you today. It's been fun. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Dan Goldblatt. Thank our guests, uh, of course, Brant Beyer and Jerry Conover. Also, Dan Goldblatt and producer Rachel Lyon, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.